It was so funny. So yeah, we were in DC. We had gotten there earlier that day. And this was... Wool? Yeah, Jacob Wool, I think. And so anyway, this was during the RNC speeches and Trump was doing the whole thing on the South Lawn. So a bunch of protesters were all around the White House as close as they could get legally making as much noise as possible with like you know big speakers and people were just playing fuck they're they're playing like just really good music people were dancing you know chanting noisemakers etc and so at one point we're out there and then i see these two guys near this hotel i used to work in dc and i would walk by where the protests were going on all the time so there's this hotel really cool bar in the basement called off the record ron it's funny it's right up right across from the white house (laughs) bunch of people uh, like to go get drinks there and jack off about power in the bathroom. And so <laughs> Jacob Bull's standing outside of it with his crony, I forget the guy's name. And I noticed him straight away because like everybody else is wearing masks and like people are just like having a good time. And then there's these two white guys not wearing masks with megaphones in their hands standing <laughs> outside of this hotel, which is like a super bougie hotel. So it's just like immediately I'm like, what the fuck right, is this? Yeah. And I start walking towards them and, and they start like saying like, the protest is over. Like you're being disrespectful to the president. He needs to speak, like go home. And I walk up and I'm like, who the fuck are these jokers, <laughs> right? And, and so I like get my phone out and I'm like, I'm, a, I'm in press gear. So I'm like about to start recording. And then I'm like, oh, hey. Hey, you're Jacob Wall, aren't you? (laughs) Start filming him, and then like a swarm of people surrounds him and just start yelling. And you know, people are like, "You fucking suck, Jacob!" And I got to tell him, you know, you suck, Jacob. I think you suck personally. Not a journalistic opinion, although I would say, journalistically speaking, he's not not a clean cut guy he does a lot of sketchy stuff but personally i think he sucks just as a person he seems not cool and and (laughs) so that was fun that was fun and then he immediately just ran him and his buddy just ran away because the crowd i assume the crowd is like run into this motherfucker before you know like i assume he's somebody recognized him yeah Yeah, because other people were yelling. It's not like I was like, hey, this is Jacob Wool. I was like, oh, hey, fuck you, Jacob. And then other (laughs) people were like, yeah, fuck you, Jacob. Because, like, (laughs) I think he's a fixture, you know. He's he's like, I don't know what he does. I don't know how he makes his money, but he shows up to these things all the time. And I don't don't think that... that was when I saw him, but he did get punched in the face. I think shortly the thereafter, day. right? Yeah. Yeah, it was either immediately after that or like the next time he tried yeah. to fuck around near the White House, someone punched him. Which you know, like, yeah, fuck Jacob Wool. <laughs> yeah, fuck Jacob Wool. Of negativity and including the ultimate form of security, which is podcast. Violence without object anymore. This is the typical violence of information. It's violent because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. <laughs> I'm, yeah, I'm I'm doing okay personally. Um, I, I'm I'm going with it. Yeah, just going with it. <laughs> so yeah, you know, no no major complaints. We're about to launch the third issue or third rather, issue. Like, oh nice. Yeah, start the whole process for that rather. So that's exciting. 
So um, what, like how far, um, like do you have, is it a matter of you've got all your, whatever you're going to publish set up and then you're just mm, waiting on the rest of the like logistical. It's, it's a mix. I mean, we have a few people lined up. We have the theme hashed out. We've got, so we've got some like pretty solid anchor pieces nice. um, with people that we're stoked to be working with. And then we have to, we have to fill out um, a bit more of the content and just the way that we operate. We do some of it in parallel. So like we'll launch the fundraising, for example, with an announcement with yeah. um, some art and like some of the writers, you know, announced and then, you know, we'll use that as like the lead in and then right. throughout the campaign we'll announce more as either we want to just release them from our pocket or as we confirm them as well. Yeah. Um, and it, it's kind of like a virtuous cycle. Cause I think if, if some contributors, potential contributors see like, Oh, that person's going right. to be writing yeah. in the magazine, like, Oh, that would be cool to right, yeah. be alongside them for the cloud or whatever. Right. Um, and so it's like that process. And it, it, it only really takes, you know, the fundraising timeline, it, it kind of stops being worth it after about like 45 days, like something like that. You start to peter out. So it, it wraps up pretty quick. And then in parallel, it's, it's a lot of the locking in of the content, refining it, and then pretty much when we're ready to send it off and actually start paying for the printing and stuff we've got all of it in our pocket it's like somewhat of the early stage but it's it's more of like we've loaded the slingshot most yeah. of the way and now we just kind of have to like gotcha follow through um so yeah it's exciting it's an exciting time and it also usually coincides with us just like getting more expanding our readership and and just like generally getting a bit more of it, uh, of traffic and attention because we're, you know, launching new things and announcing new things right. and so on and so forth. Yeah. You're doing like what, two, two issues a year or is we, that well, we, Yeah. We wanted to do two issues this year, but coronavirus. So right, right. we, we basically kind of decided collapse everything huh? to, to one, give all of our board, like editorial board space to just adapt and adjust to the circumstances and then right. have just like operate in a holding pattern. And then two, it felt a little, um, we just, we just talked about it. We felt a little weird to be going out there and being like, spend your limited yeah. resources on right. us, a relatively non-essential <laughs> yeah. uh, at, earlier on at the least, you know, and like, you know, six months ago or five, four, three, four months ago, that's, that's where we were at. Yeah. But now that we are at a place where it's like, things have to keep moving. And obviously, at least in Texas, like, I don't know if you've stomached the drive towards and through the bar areas of your town, but it's miserable around here. Yeah. People don't give a shit. No one is even doing anything to prevent, you know, potential spread of the pandemic at this point in, in those situations, at least. Yeah. So it's, it's sort of like, well, fuck it. We have to start raising right. money and we have to put out a magazine yeah. anyway. So yeah. I kind of could run into that same issue. Like, mentioning patreon and stuff on the on the show because i'm a one-man show you know i've got like a zoom subscription and adobe and all this other stuff so i've been like losing money for years and i didn't even have a patreon for like probably the first at least year and a half because it was like you know i'm just trying to put out episodes out and get attention before i even bring that up so yeah i know i know what you mean but it's like yeah it's like a dollar uh, you know if you have it whatever <laughs> exactly and we still you know have it on our website and we'll you know occasionally say you can support us this way and like we we felt lucky enough to be able to 
um, when it all hit, have a, a monthly Patreon that was like enough for us to pay for our operational costs and like still put out a steady stream of content and then like bank some so that when we start this process, we're just a bit more prepared. Yeah, it like held off expansion, you know, you could say. Now that I think we're kind of reformed in this new state of things, which is not a stable state, it's not, not a new normal or whatever, but in just the way things are now, we're, we're still like, we have better footing, so we're gonna just like get back to where we were intending to be. So yeah, next year it'll be, if not more than two, at least two, and we're like pulling in a few new folks. Um, some podcasts that we're putting out is gonna be more regular and we're gonna be having a little more fun with that. Um, nice. Yeah. Yeah, we're writing some skits. It's going to be like, I, I sent the script to, do you know who uh, Labor Kyle Kyle is? Ah, it's, uh, the name sounds familiar. I, I'm pretty, I'm almost certain I follow them. He joined our podcast and I sent him a script for like a little skit that we're going to try to start incorporating like a irregular connected skits. And it's like, uh, okay, he yeah. described it. He was like, oh man, this is going to be like acid communism, the radio play. So uh, if you ever have any funny, silly ideas, uh, because the first the first skit is it's like episode one, Lord of the Rhizomes, and he's it's finding a guy on a on a marooned island who's like a a botanist <laughs> and these pirates, and there's just a bunch of puns, and it's about an anarcho syndicalist group of pirates that are fighting against casts of characters like. Uh, Admiral uh, Jeff Benzos and, and and they're all just like one minute, two minute, just like fillers in between like an intro or a cold open yeah, and then like, you. you know, all that kind of stuff. That's cool. Um, yeah. I do follow uh labor Kyle. I've yeah. Been mutuals for quite a while, actually. We should all uh, band together and do some, yeah, some sort of round table. Cause he's all about fucking Deleuze and Fisher. And I think we could, we could have a fun little discussion. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, thanks for having me on. Oh, of course. Welcome to Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry. As always, we're sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Before we get today's episode started, just want to uh, mention I do have a Patreon at patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H. If you do feel generous and if you have the resources, consider throwing us a dollar a month. I have a returning champion, Stephen Monicelli hopping back in the happy hour with me. So, Stephen, thanks so much for... Hey, thanks for having me, Cooper. Glad to have you back. I think last time it was like April. So kind of a lot's yeah. happened since then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Kind of a lot's happened. Yeah, it's been, um, it's been a few months. A lot has happened. What is, what is the adage? It's the years when yeah, decades weeks, happen. Yeah, weeks go by. Years go by with when nothing happens, and weeks go by where years happen or something. Like there that. you go. Yeah, exactly. That's that's certainly how it's felt, at that. least for me. Yeah, same. Although it's like I can't believe it's already September. I don't know about you. I'm well. You're you're out on the streets, so you you're a little bit more dynamic. But I've been just working from home since mm -hmm. you know like March 14th or so. Yeah. So it's weird. It's is, like time my sense of time is, is crazy and I hardly go out. Wow. That's yeah. Very radically, <laughs> radically different in terms of, yeah, what I've had to be exposing myself in terms of my job, but also, yeah, I, as a result, been outside a lot. And I mean, I just like hiking a lot and I right. just get out of my house as much as I possibly can, but yeah, I try to do that too. It, it's, it's been wild. Um, being out, side so much in the middle of COVID and like the heat, no less. But, you know, on that point, I, I've 
noted remarkably few instances of COVID like among the local protest groups here. And I mean, all the research has, you know, yeah. suggested strongly that uh, large groups of people outside, as long as they have masks on, are yeah. kind of, it's, it's lower risk than right. going not, into I mean, a restaurant. There's no way to, it's like, there's no way to like go zero risk. And I mean, I don't, I'm not one of those people that is like, you know, like to some degree you do have to live your life. Like no matter what you do, right. There's, there's no foolproof system that's going to keep you from getting COVID a hundred percent. Right. No. But so it's like, be smart, but don't, you know, I'm not going to go into a restaurant or like H E B without a mask on. You know well, what I mean? I, I'm, yeah, I'm starting to frankly though, um, increase my, uh, just set of precautions and decrease the amount of risks yeah. I'm taking because right. of what I'm seeing around me right now, just the total disregard for yeah. uh, any sense of precautions um, on a Friday night or a Saturday night. It's Damn. nuts. Yeah. I, I was intending to go review briefly just to go check it out, get some photos and do a brief review of this new bar slash restaurant that is like, uh, the whole thing is that it's primarily outside. Um, I was like, okay, that seems... <laughs> Possibly Seems like possible. Reasonable. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so I go and drive by it and it's packed. And then I'm like, mm, okay, let me just drive through Deep Ellum, which is the, you know, oh, yeah. one of the big night hotspots here oh, in Dallas. Sure. And packed to the gills, just massive groups of people outside, packed together, no masks, giant uh, lines outside of places that I had previously been in. And I know what it's typically yeah. like inside. And it's right. just, I am, as a result, probably going to be going to a few, few fewer <laughs> <laughs> protested events and other things. But, you know, as you said, yeah, you got to do what you got to do. And obviously it hasn't stopped people from right. being out in the streets, which is, you know, what I've primarily been dealing with over the past few months in terms of journalism. Before we get too deep into the actual yeah. talk, let us know what you're doing. You, your was your editor in chief. Uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm I'm co-editor. We have co two yeah. co-editors, myself and Tyler, and uh, I'm the publisher. Um, so I, I have more of the, you know, you could say business side of the role and then some of the thematic work, but we operate as a collective. So this is Protean that we're, we're talking right. about. And in addition to that, I've been doing journalism here in Dallas locally with a few different publications, two of them in print and one of them online. And that's been a pretty wild experience because it's been mostly on the ground reporting and sort of immersive reporting with yeah. um, the local protest groups here in Dallas. So yeah, I mean, over the past few months, it's it's like kind of a blur in, in that sense because we've had here in Dallas, yesterday was 114 straight days of protest. Today's 115, not like consecutive. Every day there has been something, even if it's been small and a good chunk of those I've been able to be on the ground, especially in the first like half to two thirds. Um, and I don't know, I'm, I'm guessing, you know, if you've been having to work from home, you probably haven't been able to go to too many in Austin, but I mean, I, I guess I could just say before, you know, I talk about anything else. I've just been, it's been remarkable to me at least as like a native Texan, how persistent yeah. uh, and consistent it all has been. Right. Uh, in our state, not to say that in Dallas much has actually happened, um, especially relative to what's recently happened here, like in Austin, with some of the budget cut of DVD or of the 
Austin PD rather. Right. Um, but yeah, uh, it's, it's been, um, it's been a ride to say the least. We've been a lot of ups and downs and a lot of crazy shit. Yeah. It's actually interesting because I feel like the, uh, like, even though I think probably the city council is probably more, you know, they're at least like quote unquote more progressive or liberal or whatever, but like the, the protest presence, at least to my knowledge has been minuscule for uh, ever since like, you know, I guess right around the time the George Floyd incident kind of broke out, you know, there was like a couple of weeks where it was intense and obviously like, you know, the, the gentleman was killed, you know, not that long ago. Um, But since then, I think it's really slowed down quite a bit as far as like demonstrations have gone, not to say that there aren't, you know, I'm probably just not aware of, of some of the stuff that's going on, but it feels like it's things have settled down as far as. Oh, I, I, I think that's not necessarily wrong. I don't think that's wrong. Um, at least here from my vantage point in Dallas, yeah. the first few weeks, you know, there are thousands of people in the street. Right. Um, and it was remarkable to yeah. see that here since then, you know, that's why I remarked on the persistence and the consistency. It's, it's not huge amounts of people, right. but there are a great number of groups that are doing a number of activities at any given point in time, which, you know, is perhaps more infrastructure building or, um, you know, sort of ensuring that there's like consistent ways for people to be involved. But yeah, it's, it's not the huge, huge marches that we saw at the get go because unfortunately a lot of that stuff seems to be sparked off by like really bad tragedy. Yeah. Uh, People responding to that. And then, you know, two, for better and for worse, um, in Texas, so much has just gone back to forcefully right. gone back to like shit. <laughs> yeah. Nothing's happening at all, and we're all just wearing masks now. Uh, and so, yeah, like the energy is sapped away because a lot of people, I guess, have been drawn back to their jobs or have you know had benefit. Basically, they wouldn't get unemployment if they yeah. rejected going back to a job, um, and. And the extended unemployment ran out and this, that, and the other. So, I mean, there's so many reasons that the energy has died down. But at the same time, I think that at least here in Dallas, if and when those surges are to happen uh, as a result of something bad happening, which is probably going to happen yeah, (laughs) just because of the way things are and patterns and that they continue to repeat themselves until the root causes of them are, are adjusted. So yeah, you know, there will be greater amounts of infrastructure and greater amounts of organizing to perhaps harness that and right. direct, direct that right. energy towards good stuff. Uh, but yeah, you know, uh, here in Dallas, there's a, a lot of resilience built into the system. The, and by that, not to be super vague, but like the, the city council, the nature of the city council itself. Yeah, I mean, I would imagine. There's a ton of stuff built into it that basically right. makes it very resistant to change. Um, and, and there's like whole power networks that are kind of the fourth or fifth or right. sta- sixth yeah, estate, no whatever that. Um, a lot of old, are, like oil, a lot of like oil, old oil money and I'm sure real estate yeah. too. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll, give an, I'll give an example of one here in Dallas. It's called the Dallas Citizens Council. It was founded by this guy named R.L. Thornton, who I don't know if you know who he is, but I mean, there's racist. a highway named after him, right? <laughs> big old racist. Is it what? There's it, a highway, right? Is it? Yeah, like, yeah. There's there's a lot of stuff I, named after I 20, him. I feel like I reckon it goes through Dallas. I lived Thornton. in Dallas. I don't. There's a, I don't know if there's you a number that. of things. Yeah, I definitely know the name. 
Um, from, yeah. I did live in Uptown for like maybe two years. That's right. That's right. You did tell me that. So yeah, he's a big old racist or was a big old racist. Uh, affiliations with the KKK, this, that, and the other. The man founded this organization um, and it's been playing a huge role in Dallas politics and civic life ever since. And they even tout this like as a timeline on their website and they didn't have their first black member until like 1981. And, you know, um, how do I want to put it? Yeah, they just represent a lot of really powerful interests. Yeah. Billionaire families, oil families, banks, real estate developers, law firms, this, that, and the other. And they like, you know, pretty, they're like, you know, vaguely in a sense, at least in one of their functions, like ALEC, you know, that organization, ALEC, they're like this, uh, I forget what it stands for, but it's like a business consortium lobbying group um, that basically generates policy proposals and then just like hands them over to amenable politicians. <laughs> and then they're like, thanks for doing this work for us. And then they like, you know, put it into a bill. Sort of. So yeah, you know, stuff like that is here and like it's not commonly known about and there's not really clear you don't you can't vote that out so right. it just is yeah it's probably going to take time for groups to build infrastructure and or you know networks to then like direct energy and you know i don't really buy it but you know based on the past few days but you know people have been saying oh they're gonna riot and burn shit down because of ruth bader ginsburg well, see you in the streets. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> At least maybe that could be harnessed by this infrastructure. Right. Something. But something. But um, you know, I, I kid when it comes to that. I don't think yeah. we're actually gonna do that. But yeah, here in Dallas, like the proposed budget for the police is basically exactly the same. Slightly higher, and then the homelessness office budget is slightly lower. And the proportions on the charts are nuts. It just absolutely overshadows any other major office funding. what's that like in do you are you in like metro dallas like do you see uh, i live in um, dallas like within this city not like downtown but you know what you would say is within the city of dallas are you within like the 635 loop area yeah kind of? at least, okay yeah so is there a homeless like in austin you know we've there's been a big deal about the homeless ordinance and so now you have these encampments underneath mm -hmm. overpasses and like setups like that uh, there's tent cities like even along like the river just north of like right around the congress area but just mm -hmm. like north like downtown essentially like caesar chavez area there's like tents set up all along the river and, and shit like that yeah there's there's that here there's part of downtown pretty close to city hall there's a number of homeless resource homelessness resource centers and places for people to get food and this, that, and the other. And so, yeah, there's like a good concentration of people there, but it's spread out. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we have like mini, mini skid rows throughout um, the city and it does seem to be getting worse. Yeah. And I, and I would say I've been seeing more homelessness in areas where previously you may have not yeah. seen it. Right. That's another thing. But like Dallas is just, there's, there's not a ton of like centralization in terms of, the, the topology of the city, yeah, the everything distributed. So right. it's so as a result, that gets really distributed, distributed like, pretty well yeah. all throughout. So it, it it becomes a little yeah as it's as a result more diffuse and a bit harder to appreciate the, yeah. the scope and, of it. Yeah, and I think Dallas is our was is already so segregated as it is like like north, what you know below the river essentially, right? 
and then like yeah. you know east as you go to like Seagoville and and like Box Springs. Yeah. Or even yeah, closer you just follow that. that highway southeast, <laughs> yeah. and it's a totally it's a total different demographic. Yeah, and I live not too far from the park cities. You know the park cities. Oh yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I was at a thrift store today, and I found a great little. One dollar books, like a walking guide to the park cities with a bunch of like weird historical facts about oh, this place. Oh, yeah, it's just cool. I'm I'm hoping to find and it's old, so I'm hoping to find some like colorfully worded stuff. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's you know the history of those places is weird, and it ended up becoming like a wealthy white enclave where allegedly, strongly suggested was a sundown town. Right. Um, so yeah. We still have that, like we have a cities within city bounds. We've got Dallas County and then we've got the city of Dallas. And then inside of it, we've got these two really wealthy cities that have their own city council, fire department, police department, yeah. et cetera. That's wild. Um, right. Yeah. Cause it's like Highland Park is its own thing, but then there's university park, university park. Right. Okay. So that's, yeah, that's where like W lives over by SMU. Right. Yeah. I, uh, I think he does. I, can, I could walk or bike to the George W. Bush Presidential Center. Yeah. <laughs> Go I'm hang pretty out. sure that he lives, yeah, he lives like over there in University Park. Yeah, he, I mean, I don't know. I think they're in West Texas right now. You think so? You know, I, I, I don't know. I, I don't really follow, but <laughs> <laughs> I, think I do enough. get a lot of reminders that they are a big yeah. deal in the town uh, right. on a regular basis. Um uh, based on just the way things are named it's it's a it's a fun little thing it's a fun little thing yeah but it's just a symbol or a, yeah sign of how segregated and classist as well right it yeah it's that's what the cre- it was real crazy to me how like distinctly like geographically <laughs> divided the city of Dallas was <laughs> That was like well, one yeah. of the craziest things I noticed. Like I'm just not accustomed to that. Distinct segregated sort of. The, the highway infrastructure is related to this too. Because yeah. the highways that go north where the more wealthy communities are, are much better, basically. They're right. newer or better maintained, yeah. wider, more lanes. As a result, you know, um, just just like become not as a result entirely or, you know, mechanically or anything, but a contributing factor, no doubt. And so, yeah, we have this weird, weird situation here, but um, yeah, I mean, our, our city council, it has this built in element where it, it's like a part, basically kind of a part-time position and they pay less than $40,000 a year. It's like 30, it's like either 20 something or 30 something thousand dollars a year, which to live in most of these zip codes <laughs> yeah would be tough yeah, it's obviously you have to be independently wealthy you have to have in, yeah you have to have an independent money stream or you know what are you gonna do like work um delivery on the side or something <laughs> or i don't know get a patreon for your <laughs> for your city council run um i mean i don't think that's legal but there's all these things that are kind of built in that I'm not trying to give primacy to electoral politics or anything, but it seems to me a, a logical next step for some of these movements in perhaps more recalcitrant locations uh, <laughs> would be to, you know, work on getting a few different people into power in various positions to at the very least spook the other people a little yeah. bit. If not, you know, actually turn over as many as you can to get stuff done. Because otherwise, like, 
you know, our mayor's like retweeting news articles written by the propaganda arm of a Tea Party organization. <laughs> like it's, you know, we, we, we got a long way to go. Yeah. Interesting. And, and he's not a white guy. So, yeah. yeah uh, these aren't my words, but yeah, there's just like a history of like some people like coming into power and then like kind of leaving their communities behind in Dallas, at least. I mean, I don't think that's a unique pattern right. for any for Dallas. I mean, you know, you could look yeah. at a lot of other major cities and the history of municipal corruption or this, that, and the other. But yeah, it's not, something's weird. Something seems weird about the whole scenario. And it's been a radically radically illuminating learning experience because i wasn't you know i'm i'm not an expert by any means on the inner workings of um like city, government. city government yeah i mean i'm not like a scholar of you know the various <laughs> municipal government forms but like for example we have a uh it's called like a city manager led council which mm -hmm. means that the city managers paid like six figures oh like yeah big 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 jobs big job, big job. They're, the, they're the person who really has like executive authority and makes a lot of the decisions and proposals, but then has to like get all the city council people to rubber stamp. Um, right. And you know, they make amendments and they do other things. So I don't want to say that it's not like they do nothing, but yeah. it, the, 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 the dynamic is weird because then people, there's an example of like protesters spoke with the city manager. They were protesting outside of his house and they spoke with him and uh, well, he had come out and then they actually like invited him to, they invite, he invited them to come and like talk with him in his backyard. Um, a small group of a them, beer like, organizer. Yeah, basically. Yeah. Uh, and, and they were telling me, um, he was describing a few different things to them and, you know, they, they said it was like an amicable conversation, but he was kind of suggesting that, well, I'm, I'm not the one who has, you know, the authority here and, <laughs> You know, you all don't know how city government really works um, here in Dallas, which it's, it seems like it's this like game of hot potato. Yeah, where exactly. It's of like the city councils. The city council's like, well, I'll take it up it's with TC Broadnax, <laughs> and then the TC Broadnax is like, no, these guys are the ones who you know. It's, it's the, the Spider-Man meme. It's that Spider-Man meme. <laughs> yes, exactly. And then the and then there's like these petty squabbles between the mayor right. and the city manager during like these Zoom meetings where he's like. You know, you, city manager's like, you can't talk to my city employees that way. And the mayor's like, you know, wait, hold on, this is my meeting. And then, then they have like a spat about like who's managing the meeting and who's got the authority to like oh my God. shut people up basically and do oh this, God. that, and the other. So yeah, it's fun. Uh, and it doesn't make things clear uh, uh, in terms of like how to affect change um, at, a, at a local level. It, it definitely makes things a bit more uh, helter skelter. Um, oh, and before I forget, one thing. Oh, gosh, this is just a, an aside, but city manager had mentioned this. And you might find this interesting. This is a technology for uh, it's like geospatial risk mapping. It is what it's pitched as. Uh, <laughs> oh fuck! That sounds pretty scary. And I was like, contact tracing used like, as a well, like. What are the inputs? <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, you know the the person who alluded alerted me to this um, that this contract is like going through at some point is was saying they, they thought it was redlining 2.0 <laughs> or or advanced algorithmic redlining, and I was like, yeah, maybe sounds yeah. 
Okay. I don't know. Yeah. So, so yeah, there's like always a lot to go on to talk about. There's a lot going on in local politics and social movements and stuff, but like, you know, uh, the state of local journalism is a goddamn cesspool. And <laughs> right. I mean, not necessarily in terms of like the culture of the people who work there per se, but just like the business models yeah. that are, are still around and like predominate in terms of circulation um, and distribution and readership and like, the di- I don't know the difficulty right now to be able to grow alternative ones, which it's not it's not impossible, but it just takes a lot of elbow grease to create these like alternative forms, which is why you know I, I mean, enjoy why we're I enjoy, here. We're here, yeah, and why and why I enjoy doing local journalism, but like yeah. I also enjoy doing it as a freelancer if I if I can you know maintain and sustain that because I I don't know like there are decision chains right. And, you know, things can get axed and um, it's always good to have an alternative if you think something is like an important story and you want it to get out there in the way that it needs to get out there. I don't know, like it's been a, it's been a wild experience. I didn't, I did not expect to get um, hit by multiple, multiple projectiles. Yeah, I was just, I was, I was working towards this because <laughs> I knew you, took, <laughs> you actually took a couple, at least one in the line of fire. So t- tell me about that experience. Cause this was like early on when things were really yeah. like hot and heavy. Things, things were really intense in the first four days in Dallas, which I don't know how widely known that is because I know there's just so much that went on, particularly in that like last four, three, four days of May. And then, you know, the first few days of June, and so, yeah, here we had like hundreds of people spontaneously just coming out in the streets from Friday to Sunday. And that was, that was wild. Like, tear gas was popped off immediately, almost immediately on Friday. Things got really nuts. I mean, like, a Sa- I think, was it Saks Fifth Avenue was looted? Um, some department stores? Yeah. Really nice ones. Um, or maybe was it Neiman Marcus? At any rate. There Neiman, Mar- some... Neiman Marcus is downtown. <clears throat> yeah, so I believe it was Neiman Marcus. Yeah, it, it's all so that kind of makes sense. I don't think there's Blurred. a Saks. There no, was a Saks at the one whatever mall was at the corner of like six thirty five and and yeah, so uh, the North no. Tollway. No, it wasn't that. It was it was the Neiman Marcus and another really fancy store, and you know there's like a cop car or something or two set on fire and like some some damage and graffiti and this that and the other, but nothing burned down, you know, nothing that, at least as far as I understood, there was no real uproar or backlash from the business community. And yeah, most of the windows downtown ended up getting boarded up. Uh, and then on the boards would be painted <laughs> really nice murals supporting Black Lives Matter. So, yeah. I mean, that's yeah, the a first, smart move if you're a business owner, right? Is to, right. Yeah. To, to, to signal that, Hey, yeah, yeah. You know, right we don't want any trouble and we, and also we support you. It's not yeah, just right. that we don't want any trouble. So we support yeah. you, but yeah. So Friday, Saturday, we're nuts, bunch of tear gas um, and other, you know, less lethal weapons. Um, and on Saturday I had to run around a ton downtown because they were basically doing cat and mouse with protesters all throughout downtown from city hall. And then just like throughout all of the streets, like commerce street, main street, where all those big stores are, and restaurants and stuff. And I got, yeah, tear gassed a ton. Um, it was awful. And the stuff I saw was brutal. Like people who were just not prepared for any of that caught up in it. People in Dallas were, it's not at all like 
a place like San Francisco or New York yeah. or Portland or something where a lot of people first day showed up yeah. like ready <laughs> to go, like goggles, you know, multiple masks and so on and so forth. And so that happened throughout the weekend. And then on the Monday, it was like six, 700 people protesting outside of the courthouse and then a march that went towards um, Oak Cliff, which you have to cross a bridge to get there. And they started marching. And this was after they had already tried to instate a curfew and were trying to say, this is the curfew boundary. So they were intending on walking out of the curfew area <laughs> uh, over this bridge. And then it was basically like an ambush. Uh, the cops blocked immediately blocked the other side of the bridge and then when hundreds of people were already on it they blocked the rear as well so they just kettled everybody on yeah. the bridge and then a ton of gas was deployed a bunch of rounds um less lethal rounds were shot into the crowd saw people's like heads split open and really bad bruises on their bodies and stuff uh and so after like already like one or two rounds of gassing i had to go back to the front because the whole crowd was getting pushed yeah and i i was like at this point i was like i thought we were just about to get all arrested you know i thought all these people were about to get arrested because you know we had nowhere to go yeah um You're and stuck. so the crowd gets like pushed and there's like screaming i'm like oh my god what the hell so i go back to the front with my assistant and then we're about around a bunch of other journalists which i i wasn't really aware of at the time but after seeing multiple other <laughs> angles where i was like oh there's like a guy in an orange vest and then there's this guy with like a big camera who's shining a light on me and then there's like this other guy at a camera and so at any rate crowds walking away and then i get shot um in the leg yeah like, back of the leg right yeah and then they shot Sorry. me again which i didn't know <laughs> until afterwards um with like a, a paint marker round which you could read into that maybe. I yeah. didn't see a ton of paint marker rounds being shot. I saw mostly pepper ball rounds, which are, they're white. They're, they yeah. don't have like a green residue. Right. So at any rate, then, yeah, they, they detained me and arrested me for like a few hours um, despite having like press all over me. <laughs> <laughs> and then like being like, look at my phone. And they're like, that's not good enough. Um, anyone can do that. I'm like, <laughs> Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, we, we, we ended up getting released after like a lot of back and forth, uh, but like already being put in, um, restraints and, uh, afterwards then they denied for weeks that they used gas on the bridge. They were claiming they just used smoke. No, <laughs> that was definitely not the case. And then we were able to, through a series of like exposés and then eventually a leak that came to the same, publication that I had been writing with, we were able to document all of the weapons that they were using, document that they had used them multiple days leading up to the bridge, and then were able to like confirm other people who are on the bridge and other journalists say like, yeah, that, that smelled the same. It felt the same. It was burning, you know, like the same solution that washed off tear gas on Saturday worked on Monday. Yeah. So, and then it got leaked from an internal police report a couple weeks later that indeed they did use tear yeah. gas. Uh, and then now it's like the same game that's been played with the city council and the city manager of like the, the chief was like, oh, I didn't know that, someone lied to me. And then, you <laughs> yeah. know, this sort of 
back and forth. And um, I think it was like maybe just last week or the week pre previous, she announced her resignation in November. So, I mean, a ton of stuff has contributed to that because there are right. other really awful cases. Yeah, I'm of sure. Police brutality that like the Dallas Morning News um, highlighted. I mean, a ton of articles. Even Fox News after those first four days, our local Fox News affiliate was like, I'm not putting words in their mouth, but I'm, I'm paraphrasing. Like, this was pretty bad. Yeah, <laughs> like, you right. know, even they seem to be highly critical of the, the, the nature of how the situation was handled. So um, what I'll say is remarkable is, like, despite a pretty unanimous perception of, like, that was bad, um, we haven't really had much serious uh, reform let's say reformer policy proposals that actually align with the people yeah. that have been out there it's 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 a, it's a lot of stuff that it's like that's nice but right. we didn't want we didn't ask for that yeah like that's not what we were asking for you, you, we didn't ask you to paint a nice mural in front yeah of right City yeah Hall. exactly <laughs> like, that's cool but like when i went to washington dc to cover um the big march that al sharpton had organized not too long ago, tens of thousands of people, nuts. Uh, a good number of people from Dallas had gone up, so I went with them. And at one point, several of them were protesting in the newly named Black Lives Matter Plaza. Oh God, fucking then, liberals, man! <laughs> and then we're tear, and then we're tear gassed and maced in Black Lives Matter Plaza. Jesus, while protesting for Black Lives Matter. So we've got we've got some really fun, fun juxtapositions here for all to see. But it doesn't really seem like, I, I mean, you know, that happened in DC. It, it's not gonna move the dial much here or anything, but it's, it's, it's more of just like, uh, no, one's, no one's surprised. Yeah. Of all places. I mean, you of shouldn't- Of all places. I mean, I'm not surprised. <laughs> I think liberals are definitely surprised um, by what's happening. And like, I don't know. I've been reading the unique in its property. So you'll have to, I'm, <laughs> that's in the mode I've been in. Like I'm in a Max Sterner mode. I've been digging into that. I'm doing a series on, on the unique in its property. Yeah. So I've got like two episodes down, two to mm -hmm. go at minimum. <laughs> so that's where my headspace is at. So I'm, my mindset is in like destroying liberals and everything that's been brought up in the protest as far as like the law and like, it's, it's so fucking spooked. It's incredibly spooked. It, it's reading Sterner is he's so memed, but I gotta say I'm enjoying the hell out of the book and I'm enjoying the hell out of the the thought. I I've enjoyed Sterner is my not just a meme. <laughs> yeah, I've enjoyed my engagements with Sterner for sure. I mean, I feel like he helped me challenge some of the spooks in my head. Yeah, right for sure. <laughs> um, someone I'm wondering if you've read this is I know we we totally just made a tangent here, but I like oh it's this. okay. Someone I'm wondering if you read is uh, Jane Bennett. She Jane Bennett. came out with this book, Vibrant Matter, not long, 2009. So I guess it's, you know, it's been a little bit, but it's great um, in that she's like pulling Deleuze, you know, she's like Spinoza, Deleuze, like Thoreau, um, a bunch of others that, like Bergson and a bunch of others, um, okay. like Delanda, I mean, a ton. And she kind of sketches out this, trying to sort of in more, I don't know, terms that are perhaps more palatable to the Anglo-Saxon Western academic or yeah. 
popular discourse. The the material side of like Deleuze, the notion of what is like an assemblage, for example, mm -hmm. um, and sketching out this idea of like a sort of Spinoza's the Spinoza's continuum of of matter having canatus and drawing out how like uh, a landfill has a set of vital flows and effects that are not passive nor are they necessarily purely mechanic or deterministic and like drawing on notions of like affect as well as like chinese notions of like xi the strategic positioning of things to uh draw out like you know perhaps a a more um material ecological mindset and then also trying to sketch out ways for the individual subject to increasingly appreciate that yeah. vibrant materiality of things. Yes, um, yes. And she uses great examples of, you know, everything from like a landfill to a book, which draws you in or has its sort of own sort of agency, perhaps not to anthropomorphize them, but also yeah. like the affect of like, what is, what is it? What is the, uh, the force that a dead rat has, what's going on there, the decomposition, these other things. Um, and then also just trying to position humans as well in that so that we are not above and not trying to control, but are, you know, perhaps a bit more humbled in our understanding of right. how we are affected. And then so that hopefully we can be a bit more strategic and like fight against consumerism, which she positions as like anti-material because you're just throwing oh, things absolutely. away it's and you're not, yeah, yeah you're, you're not giving a, any sort of appreciation or thought um, to the, the sort of agency or the, the, the sort of use that an object has in front of you. She tries to kind of, she goes from trying to talk about things as objects to things as things, like giving thing objects thingness so that like you can have a more everyday understanding of perhaps an experience where you look at something for the first, it's like you're looking at something for the first time, you know, that sometimes you have an experience of looking at art, for example, yeah. or, or it's a, and it seems like you're having this like metaphysical um, sort of experience. And so, yeah, I mean, I would, I would recommend her. She, I came across her by doing some reading for the, the theme for the third issue that we're oh, nice. putting okay. together. Yeah. How much, it, uh, how much can you talk about theme wise? I can talk a bit about that. Yeah. I think we're, we're pretty settled on, metaphorically and and also sort of in terms of like imagery and yeah like also philosophical references um centering around um kind of like breathing and so i'm not gonna like reveal the title we've got a few working titles but yeah just like the notion and exploration and lens and metaphor of breath and breathing which touches on a lot of i think extremely relevant things but also opens the door like and by relevant i mean timely yeah you know you you as bifo so bifo is um someone who i was reading and he has a great book breathing and it came out 2018 and he was talking about the sort of the current state of breathlessness and this idea of how we are as if you're like considering breathing like attuning yourself to your environment your yourself attuning yourself to that line between and the relationship between your body and your environment and your consciousness to do that right now would be to attune yourself to some really fucked up shit. And that's only become, and I'm paraphrasing, I'm really simplifying it. And it's only become more um, palpable when it comes to 
you know, that metaphor and also lived experience, he draws it to his lived experience of asthma. And so, you know, the idea of like, you have to kind of give in to breath, which ties you to your surroundings and other things. And he gave the example of like his sister uh, calming him down when he had an asthma attack, basically saying like, you need to stop trying to breathe so rapaciously and like calm down and then just like give in to it and then be able to catch your breath and like slow. Yeah. And that was able to help him like cope in the moment. But like Eric Gardner and other yeah, people right. like that, we're not relevant. given yeah, that exactly. choice. Yeah. Um, and you know, people in the West coast right now are not really given the choice. Um, to be able to breathe oh, yeah. okay. outside yeah, and, you sure. know, if you're going to a protest or, you know, yeah. there's, and, you know, I'm just sketching out some of the literal right. no, yeah. you know, experiences of it. Sure. But um, on a deeper level, you know, I, I think breath and breathing has been like the site and center of a lot of philosophical discourse and exploration for like thousands of years, if not yeah. more recently, like whether it's like the, he, he, he draws, um, you know, connections to things like yoga and meditation, which I think are interesting. Um, but yeah, like, you know, the idea of like breathing, uh, attuning yourself to breath of yourself and then also of a collective and, you know, fun plays on words like conspiration. <laughs> um, so, you know, I think there's a lot to be explored through that yeah. lens because also it's not just about describing the pure negativity of the moment. It's, very much about, okay, so how are we envisioning ways to create some breathing room? How are we envisioning ways to create these like autonomous spaces to like, you know, try to still be happy and have this experience of togetherness radically without, you know, succumbing to just being blackpilled, just totally, you know, <laughs> which is, this is all fucked. There's which never, is a, <laughs> never been a more easy time to be blackpilled. It, <laughs> I, you know, I wonder, I mean, I feel like, yeah, with, with, I mean, in modern history, I don't know. Yeah. With the my of technology opened even more perhaps like, because it's, it's like the onslaught is of information's always there. But I, I sometimes when I look back at certain forms of imagery and art or narratives of like apocalyptic narratives, that stuff's been around in contemporary, like in the past hundred years with like atomic yeah, I guess um, apocalyptic right. narratives. Um, I mean, millennial apocalyptic narratives. So s some of true, it, like very true. some of that yeah. stuff is a little comforting to me because I'm like, okay, so this isn't the first time yeah. some people are feeling this, but I think it is also very fair because we can measure how many roughly how much this is being felt. We can have proxies for like gauging uh, how fucked people think shit is right now and like you know survey says it's not great vibes are fucked folks they're not good vibes, they're not good vibes are fucked vibes are <laughs> fucked absolutely you know so you know we gotta laugh so we don't cry but yeah but yeah it's 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 more real it's never been more relevant arguably you know i i but i i think the fact that it's people have felt it before also gives me hope that there are lessons to be learned about how to overcome it yeah, because people have also probably overcome it right. before. If if that feeling is at all similar, um, which I think it is, so I, yeah, I have to always try and remain radically Around yourself, positive. right? Yeah, I, I don't want to say positive, but like, or nor optimistic, but just like radically <laughs> pragmatic. What maybe? is? The, I think the word or the phrase is like. Um, 
it's pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the will. I think that's a Gramsci. Mm. I think that's a Gramsci. Yes, I I really like that phrase. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's very powerful. My friend, uh, I have a friend, Adam, who does the Red Library podcast, and he has this whole thing. He calls it dialectical pessimism. I don't know much exact. I don't know the <laughs> the theory exactly behind dialectical pessimism, but I, I, yeah, I, something I, that I, he I, sort of. I fucked with pessimism. I feel like, you know, it's it's got its historical moments. I feel like modes, I don't know, the more I read different thinkers, the more I try to appreciate them as just modes of thought as much as I can. Because another great book I read recently, Evil Media, it's basically this collaboration between a Deleuzian and um, a media theorist. And they kind of propose a lot of a way of thinking about tools and like media and philosophy as just uh, like a, a set of stratagems, so to speak, that are not in, uh, totalizing and they don't intend to explain everything. Uh, yeah. So they have a built-in level of uncertainty. And it's just, yeah, like if, if one tire goes flat, you put on a different one. Um, and, and building the toolbox is important. Building right. the connections between them is important. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, I, I And that's why I like... I like folks like Stirner, but I guess that's what I'm saying that is because like I, I could, at least for my own personal health, couldn't ascribe to a, pe- a pessimistic worldview. Because there's, the, there's that one American philosopher who uh, the sort of legend goes that he got really depressed. He was re- having a hard time because he was reading and he was doing his thinking. And he basically was like, okay, so God's dead. Um, <laughs> nothing means anything. So what the fuck? you know, paraphrasing. And, uh, and then he ran this experiment where he basically was like, okay, what if I just pretend I fake it till I make it when it comes to believing that my free will exists and that I have the ability to make choices and, and those choices can have meaning. And he just, he did it. And then he went on to found like one of the foundational schools of American philosophy. I'm going to look this person up so that I'm, I'm not just like bullshitting here for a second, but it, to me, you know, I was like, okay, so that's a very simplistic, you know, very simplistic lessons that you could draw from that, right? But at least in, in my experience, like, I feel like pessimism nor optimism, I mean, pessimism and optimism are modes in my mind. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. like, and I also scoff at anyone who tries to call themselves a realist. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I think we're getting a bit far afield here and I'm just, just going on. I would love to talk to your friend about his dialectical pessimism one day because <laughs> yeah. I enjoy reading, uh, should, reading oh. stuff like that. Reading stuff that makes me uncomfortable is my favorite. I'll so if it's, you. if it's uncomfortable, uh, I, I don't know, like I, I, I'm, I'm guessing you're a, a land reader. Have we talked about uh, that? A little bit, a little bit. Yeah. I, uh. I do have fanged numina um, throw pillows. Oh, okay. So just a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> you just dabble. <laughs> I mean, I'm not so much enthralled with land. I'm more so like, I mean, just, I mean, it's like. <laughs> I wouldn't say I am either at all. It's, it's like it's just, the dark, but there is a, like a certain, I think, a tra- allure of the like rampant nihilism of, of land. Um, well, I, I read. Especially I like read early in, land, of course, but not I, I so much. I read it primarily. The, neo-reactionary stuff but like early land is just i mean i read my roommate the other day i was reading um meltdown just we've been doing this thing where like we work out a few days a few nights a week and i've been reading poems like romantic like blake shelley uh who else Uh, keats etc 
um, Coleridge. And uh, I was like, here, this time I'm going to read, I'm going to read the first like few paragraphs of Meltdown. And I'm just going, I'm going like <laughs> fast, you know, I'm, I'm doing it. I'm doing a whole bit where I'm just like going through Meltdown. And it was, uh, it was a lot of fun. <laughs> I, I, I started reading him from like two angles just because of his relation to Mark Fisher and right. then also in the CCRU. But also yeah. I, I always try to at least put it on a list of things to read whenever I notice someone who like, yeah, a lot of, like you said, neo-reactionary or yeah, just like if people are flocking to something like that, yeah. I just want to understand what the fuck's right. going yeah, on. Yeah, what's right? going on. I want to be able to understand the landscape that, that is <laughs> The trying. landscape? Yeah, that yeah. is drawing those people uh, <laughs> because, you know, I feel like there are ways that you can hopefully counteract that and yeah. or I, I like divert some of that energy. Um, for example, like the right wing, alt-right video game ecosystem is scary yeah, to me. Crazy. Um, I, I'm going to start, I bought equipment to stream, <laughs> but I good. keep getting too lazy or like yeah in the so, evenings i've had a few libations or what have you and it's like then i don't feel like <laughs> playing video mm -hmm. games but so i uh i am gonna plug my boy labor kyle here because i feel like his videos i hope that they end up showing up on some of the algorithms that those those people watch because it's like they they might see the thumbnail and be like oh that's something i'm interested in and then they yeah. get like maybe they get slightly turned on to some adorno all of a sudden right um because he talks about video games and leftism and and i suppose it's just sort of a an example of what i think is you know you can't spend too much time to, time trying to plug all the holes in the dam but if you like see a, a a space where it's attracting and churning out a lot of thought that's like concerning and activity that's concerning it's like okay maybe we have to seriously consider trying to create some alternative poles to attract yeah. like whatever is is you know it's like you can't not engage with video games basically it, it's right. like you can't not engage with like the culture that's drawing people and i feel like you know land in some ways was doing that with electronic music and other weird occult stuff right um i don't know if i think there necessarily needs to be a, a weird left occult like uh intense direct opposite pole but you know i think everybody's cool with witches so <laughs> you know <laughs> yeah it was uh there's so much like going back to what the, i think the, maybe the first book that you described reminded me a lot of like watari's work because he has of course the three ecologies and then like mm. what is it it's there's like chaosophy. Uh, what's the other? Oh, he, oh man. Chaos, is chaosmosis one Chaosmosis of is one. But yes. then there's like. I haven't read all of, all of Guattari's yeah. work. So I'm okay, not so there's three ecologies, chaosmosis, chaosophy. Oh, it's like schizoanalytic cartographies is the one I was thinking of. But yeah, three ecologies and then the schizoanalytic cartographies and the chaosophy. I think they're, all of them do have like a certain element of. Um, like ecology is very much something that Guattari is is interested in. Mm. So then I think you, you would enjoy this Jane, the vibrant matter. Yeah, I'm wondering how much I'm wondering how much she's drawing from Guattari because that's definitely. I, I wonder too. I, I I mean I think she's like she's because she doesn't shy away from continental philosophy and any sort of like literary theory. And, I mean, definitely, like if she's a Deleuze of any stripe, she's familiar with, with Guattari but she, stuff. What I, when I'm reading her, at least I just get the impression that she's 
trying to kind of make like a turn uh, in at least the prose style uh, right. to make it, how do I want to put it? To, to, to <laughs> use words that are uh, a, a bit more applicable. She's kind of, right. you know, she's, she's not, a, I mean, as anyone in philosophy is generally unafraid to make their own words or kind of draw on their own terms. And she, she, she does a good job of, um, she'll like, you know, introduce her own term and then try and draw some distinction to like a relevant example. Right. That is when you read the prose stylings, it's like, you know, a philosopher that was like re writing by gas lamp or candlelight or something in like the 1800s or, or maybe more recently, but still like writing in a different language perhaps and then it's like translated and the prose is like clunky and yeah. we're not like talking about contemporary examples so then we have to kind of like yeah. you know elucidate a bit more so she's she's I guess what I'm saying is she's a refreshing read because she's touching on all of these things but I I, I haven't felt compelled yet to like search for like a reader or like a, right. you know something to to accompany it, but I, I enjoy it because she lays out, she has like a philosophical project she lays out and then she also, which is this idea of, you know, vibrancy and, um, you know, multi, you know, which is building on all of the work of all these other books, multidimensional, uh, right. and, and it's like back and forth, um, you know, not just binary, but uh, multi-directional relationships. Um, and then she, she builds it on to a more political, ex explicitly political project, um, which, you know, she draws to a lot of the ecological crises that we're increasingly sure. being exposed to, right? But man, I never thought that being in Texas, I would be getting at least presently like the the positive end of the climate catastrophe for the moment. Like we're not getting a ton of smoke over the state at all. Whereas, you know, I was living in San Francisco, not about little more than a year and a half ago. Um, and I look at the maps every day and I'm just like, Jesus Christ. Yeah. That stuff is insane. <laughs> it looks like it really does look like the kind of shit you see referenced in revelation. <laughs> no kidding. Yeah. So, yeah. It, it, I mean, you know, uh, the orange skies and red skies, like that shit is nuts. If if there were such a thing as signs and symbols, yeah. they're, they're, be, <laughs> right. they're becoming bolded and underlined. <laughs> I feel like we're we're getting some additional punctuation marks coming up. I mean, when you start to think about like the possibility of some sort of like fucked up combination tsunami fire nato being a real thing, <laughs> oh, man. Uh, or just like oh hey that's a storm. Wait no, those clouds are on fire and now it's raining and like there's like there's like winds that are coming in at seventy miles an hour that are also like you know scorching hot or something. Like these things are seemingly plausible. I'm learning about new forms of disasters that we're facing, as well as did you see that new hole that just dropped? Out in like Siberia, There's I just saw like a, there was an one inexplicable hole that just like it's just like yeah, oh, it, big, it's like a new hole. I think it's like methane off gassing. Yeah, it's not an. It's causing the. Yeah, it's it's explicable. It's methane. It's well, the melting of the permafrost, yeah. I believe, and then it's causing disturbances. Oh, the, the gas that's trapped underneath the frozen shit is getting released, which is of course fantastic for the environment. Yeah, it feels good. It feels good, man. You also mentioned um, sort of the theme related to breathing for the next edition of Protean. And I was wondering, like, I feel like maybe unsaid is the notion that, or the, uh, you know, the fact that 
Deleuze himself only had one lung. <laughs> so I was wondering if that informed your choice I, or I actually at all. Know did you that. not know that? No, oh, you did not I, know that? Yeah. I did not know that. I mean, you know, like I probably would have included that perhaps even in the previous <laughs> issue because I talked about how Camus had tuberculosis, which is, you know, um, similarly afflicting disease to the lungs. Uh, although, you know, definitely different than having singular lung. Well, yeah, same thing. Uh, Deleuze also had tuberculosis uh. and then had a lung removed in like 68, roughly. Mm. And so he had really bad uh, respiratory issues for the remainder of his life, of which, you know, ultimately you can draw, draw a line to him, like eventually taking his life because of that situation. So, mm. Mm. yeah, man, I. I think that would be really hard to have to deal with. I mean, it's just like and literally. Plus and of course, being a your Frenchman, daily life. smoked, you know, a Frenchman in the like 60s and like smoking, of course. And I think even after he had the lung removed, he continued to smoke. Classic French. Mistaken. Yeah. Classic. Yeah. I, I did not know that, but I, I, will, I will be thinking about that. You know, uh, did, yeah, right. I mean, one, one thing that's also perhaps been unsaid thus far is uh, there's a study suggesting that increasing CO2 concentration, even, you know, within healthy ranges or like, you know, non-life-threatening ranges, I should say, uh, can start to have detrimental effects on cognitive performance. Oh yeah. Um, I mean, that makes sense. Yeah. And so it's like, they've done these studies like in different settings, like a, like a crowded classroom or something where the, maybe there's poor ventilation and then you have CO2 accumulating in the room. Right. Um, and, and you can actually literally see in, in places where this is versus like a school room with a controlled environment, like a, a decrease in scores. And so, you know, there are people who are like, Hmm, we're kind of just doing that on a global scale, aren't we? And so that's that's something that I've also been thinking about. It's just like, might I'll just begin slowly but steadily dumber as we're breathing. <laughs> yeah. So maybe invest in some house plants. Thankfully, my roommate has definitely done that because I'm I'm just I will forget. That's my problem is I will I will forget to water <laughs> forget to water the plants. I don't think I had started this the last time we talked, but I've since been doing a series of episodes, a deep dive into uh, Guattari's Machinic Unconscious. Mm-hmm which is, it was published right around the time that A Thousand Plateaus was. And so it's very much like a good companion to A Thousand Plateaus. It's ver like a lot of the content is, is similar. It's talking about um, like faciality for one example. Mm. Uh, but I, I, that is, okay, good. I actually want to read more about, because that chapter always is like, frustrated yeah. me yeah um so we're lo we looked at the faciality chapter in machinic unconscious and uh what's really cool is i have a friend who i definitely would recommend especially if you have questions about Deleuze or Guattari, is uh taylor atkins mm -hmm. translated the machinic unconscious into english awesome guy i just met him through shit posting and uh we've been doing myself and then a couple of other guys have been going through chapter by chapter Nice. Machinic unconscious and trying to again like kind of that similar project of like let's talk about let's kind of bring this down to earth and like make it a little bit more accessible and just yeah. get the ideas out there. One thing is just to like expose Guattari because he gets sort of second fiddle so much to Deleuze, but in his own He's right is a folded in titan. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I mean, he did he did so much writing. I mean, he was just highly productive in his capacity to 
to put out words, it Just seems a real, like. A real interesting guy. I mean, I don't know how you, much you know about him at all, but he had an ex- was a student of Lacan. He um, you know, was a practicing analyst for, you know, forever was a like Lacan, like I said, yeah, Lacan, Lacan student, drove around Lacan, um, you know. Mm-hmm. Lacan's driver, I remember. Lacan driver, right. Um, but also like obviously learning and then reacting to Lacan and I don't know, just an interesting, I mean, Laborde, the, did you know that he had a, this experimental clinic, Laborde? Are you familiar with the story at all? I am not, actually. Yeah. No. So he had an experimental, I don't know if it was like, maybe I don't want to say a sanitarium, but it's sort of like, yeah, this experiment, experimental Borderline. treatment. Borderline. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Kind of like a treatment facility for mental illness or called Laborde that was a really interesting like exploration of... <laughs> Watari started out as a uh, as a Trotskyist back in the like yeah he was like early on was a Trotskyist and before he like ended up getting out of leaving Trotskyism and then gets involved in psychoanalysis and then he hooks up with Deleuze eventually and then you know the story goes on and on but all during that time he was doing all this kind of crazy stuff at Laborde which is a, it's super fascinating I mean he had this thing called the grid where they would they would swap jobs and roles and things like that so doctors would be cooking or the cooks would be like Mm. treating patients they might not have been like doing actual doctorly so sort of stuff like fully but there was sort of this allowing them to have like a greater appreciation for how the hospital actually functions or just like other like just generating a more like communal atmosphere by experiencing what other people experience yeah just as simple as that is like not being you're stuck as this or this or this like there it was more like dynamic sort of experience and attempt to kind of a different sort of communal experience i think that's really interesting and I, i think um those sorts of practices um are something that i I mean, tying this back to some of our conversation earlier, I've been really pleased to see um, some of those sorts of practices of just more like focus on communal activity and like job switching and like sharing roles uh, in a lot of mutual aid networks and other things that have just emerged organically as a result of the protests and COVID and the recession and all this stuff combined. I think it's really neat. I mean, I think we... If, if we do take some of these philosophical explorations seriously, um, or at least in some of these ideas, you know, kind of pointing towards, you know, collective unconsciousness or not just a collective, not the notion of collective unconsciousness per se, but just like that things are less uh, singular and disconnected yes. as they seem right. uh, exactly. via the perspective of a singular subject. Exactly. And that there, there may be, um, you know, these, these connections, these deeper connections and these, these ways of exploring them and understanding, you know, how they function, not necessarily why, but more of the how, yeah. um, I think is always interesting. And like applying that to figuring out ways to apply that to practice of life and daily activity to engender, like we will need to figure out ways to do that to engender an appreciation for that lived experience, I think, because like, what we're working within right now is a set of semiotics and cultural practices and organizations that are all about like you just doing your thing uh, and being highly individualistic. 
and its yeah. mindset. You have to it, like the you have to become an expert at your specific niche. It's sort of the move. Like yeah, it's the whole liberal like ten thousand hours Malcolm Gladwell sort of vibe too. Like, I mean, yeah, and I think and it's all the over that same. And all the overarching neoliberal, you know, abstracted economic subject logic and, you know, the move towards just atomization of all sorts of things when it comes to measurement or, you know, status or role or whatever. I mean, just like people feeling more isolated, alienated in more ways than one than ever before. So it seems, yeah, really critical to be able to create, I don't know, practices for that and spaces for those practices to be experimented with. And I don't know, I mean, like, I don't know exactly how it all should pan out, but like, yeah, it's, it's, it's stuff that I feel like, uh, and as Jane Bennett, the, the philosopher I was talking to, she kind of points to, it's like, you know, some of these, there's a reaction, right. To Deleuze and Guattari's work and some of the work that they inspired as like some of, Oh, this is anti-Marxist or anti-materialist and what she's kind of trying to do with her, Part, partly with her project is, you know, being like, no, actually it's, no, it's very materialist. Yeah, I it's mean, extremely materialist. Yes, it, exactly. Uh, yes. Uh, uh, but, but it's not mechanistic. It's not teleological. Uh, right. It's, 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 you know, so it's perhaps it's not necessarily the same dialectics or whatever, what have you, that is, is commonly associated with the sort of materialism. But I, I, yeah, I think being able to bring it down to earth is going, it's, it's going to only become easier. Also, we've got more tools and stuff. Right. than ever before. So I, I, I would say despite all of the resistance and recalcitrance that we've been facing in Texas to significant, you know, policing reform, which is what I've been mostly writing about, you know, like there's, there's still going to be movement towards more, I think, just visions for like, how can we deal with at least locally, collectively, the community better? Like there's been an experience a huge rise in just like volunteer food rescue and redistribution efforts, which are just like all mutual aid, you know, like no ID check, no like income check, just like, yeah. Do you need food? Like, do you need it? And it's like, do you need a box of fresh fruits and vegetables come here? And it's like a bunch of food that would otherwise just be like thrown away because of capitalism, basically because of the incentive structures of the capitalist food system. So you know, I've been very inspired by that stuff. Yeah. Um, cropping up and persisting and growing, um, even if we, you know, are still, you know, dealing with a bunch of people who don't have jobs or, you know, people feel like you can't go to work or a pandemic or just, you know, this is the laundry list of shit, right? All this stuff, you know, and we haven't even fucking talked about Ruth Bader Ginsburg or Trump. <laughs> like, fuck, fuck, fuck that. Like, I don't want to talk about that right yeah, now. I mean, honestly... It- I don't either, other than to say, just shake my head at liberals and just, oh, oh my God. God. Yeah, dude. It's, and again, man, it's this, uh, and reading Sterner, like at the same time is, is like perfect counterpoint because it's just like, this shit is so spooked. Like your faith in institutions and rules and abstractions is bullshit. Like it's, it is, it's the material, like lived fucking experience of people in the world that matters not not your fucking liberal ideal of what a citizen or the law or like all that shit is is fucking so heavily mm-hmm. spooked yeah and i mean it'd be one thing if i were to be hearing arguments that are like you know have faith in institutions because of like x y and z materialist reasons 
of like these people within these institutions are organized and like won't let this happen <laughs> like you know or like like it's not just like vague uh allusions to like you know let's all believe in this thing which is poorly defined to begin with in many of the cases of the things that they're wanting us to believe in whether it's you know certain principles or otherwise and so yeah i mean like i don't know I, on the other hand there's some really you know fascinating analysis of like the judicial power right of the supreme court and 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 anything i think the only convincing analysis of it is that it's just like it's just like a group of people it's always been a group of people and uh they strategically grew their power over time by right. like making certain decisions and compromises and like one can say like hopefully that history will you know uh, influence like their behavior right but like that's an awful example it's literally just like nine people who are totally uninfluenceable and like yeah. don't represent I mean, anyone it is the like, most it is the most authoritarian bourgeois institution out of in the entire american government because yeah, and, <laughs> they're and not directly elected like it's okay. the most it's oh these nine people are lifetime appointments and have all this power to circumvent every every like democratic institution that was a foundational moment for my just like political uh, awareness as a as a young person because so i was born in the 90s right like er, very early and and so i was coming to sort of just general intellectual awareness when the supreme court decided to give it to bush and i was like what the fuck <laughs> so who are these motherfuckers and how did they decide this and they're giving it to, to that guy i mean like he I live in the state where he's from. I think he's stupid. This is, yeah, this exactly. is not a good idea. I was just like a child and I, you know, obviously didn't have a lot of great ideas beyond just like reacting to this. But yeah, even, even as a ch I feel like children can understand that it's a very strange yes. set of situation and that we're just like potentially running towards another That's showdown like that. I mean, I don't want to fucking curl the monkey paw or anything, but. <laughs> like, oh, I mean, November, I think is for sure going to get crazy something is going to happen like the cops can't for one the cops can't go that far without killing someone i mean obviously they've been killing people there will be another one that will that that's that's just a moment waiting to happen right well, you have that oh yeah you have that moment that's any that could happen at any time something significant you never so know right we're conditioned i feel like though we're kind of conditioned to that moment i mean like the the uprisings and uproars about them are probably still going to keep happening but like a lot of people are conditioned to that what i what hasn't happened yet is we haven't had like a kent state moment yeah and i don't you know i really would that would be fucking awful if we were to have like a national guard shooting or some sort of massacre like that right i mean eventually but, it's going to get there the, the reality uh, that I have to point to is the historical one, which is like not that many people were disapproving of Kent State um, yeah. at the time. I mean, we were also dealing, they were also dealing rather with a completely different um, information landscape exactly, and political yeah. landscape. So one, we hope that were something like that to happen, that we, you know, we would be able to have a better understanding of what actually happened and that we wouldn't just have this sort of like, you know, brushing away of, of it. Um, and that hopefully it wouldn't just be like 11% or whatever of people who think that would, it was fucked up. Right. Um, but I don't know. Yeah. You know? I don't know, man. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, like <laughs> looking you know, at all this shit, I mean, you still have, I mean, I think it would be, people haven't changed that much. I think that's 
one of the big misconceptions about the modern world is that we are so like the the human individual is has more capacity for intelligence or et cetera, et cetera, like whatever qualities there are, right? Like it's not necessarily the case that human being like we have access to tools now that we didn't, but the basic like human cognitive ability has not altered that significantly over the last like, you know, several thousand years, right? There's not enough time for there to be some dramatic uptick in in cognitive ability. So I don't know, man. Um, People reacted reacted to Kent State and they blame the students then. And I think that that is going to be, there'll be that faction. uh, I mean, it's dialectics, right? There's going to be that contradiction to whatever occurs in, in some to some degree. So I don't know, but I, th- I think that moment is coming. I'm interested to see how November, I mean, you have, a, again, like you have the looming potential for another police shooting or something in that, in that realm happening. So that's one thing. You have the election, obviously with, with the Ginsburg death, accelerates the, the, the stakes go up a lot more, right? there yeah. too in terms of the election so that's probably going to draw up you would think that would be a boon for biden in terms of electoral politics it's arguably a boon for both of them yeah, right yeah you know i mean yeah it's like I mean, it, the it line of flight could go either way it depends on how you know they use it right how yeah. they they utilize the opportunity that has been presented because it is an affordance to both of them for sure like but you know no, like just no matter being what, able to nominate someone is powerful. No matter what, though, um, there will be, like, it's not going to be a landslide victory in one way or the other. And, uh, I mean, I'm sure you've seen those maps where it's, like, what, 275 to 275 or whatever. And, like, we have yeah. the potential for that, too, in November. And, I mean, no matter who wins, there's going to be some type of reaction. And I don't think it's going to be, there will be, I think more um, people in the streets at, at the very least. Yeah. We, we least. have to be prepared for Regardless. some sort of response or reaction. No doubt. Think also anything could happen in between. Yeah. I mean, so many things could sure. happen between now and November, especially because this is often the time when people who've been saving shit in their back pockets, try to drop it. So who knows? I mean, I, I think, when it comes to just maybe the more medium to long term, yeah, like we've stopped evolving physically for the most part. We've gotten a bit taller and some other things have happened and we can, you know, learn certain things maybe a bit faster or we can, you know, use technology in new ways, right? Yeah, we've extended ourselves. I mean, we've been cyborgs for a long time, but right. we're like, you know, really, really proficient now. But we have kind of run into some major roadblocks when it comes to things like education. Uh, I think particularly, which, yeah, we can't learn. Our systems are not incentivized and not structured and our sort of pedagogy and theory and practice is not caught up to the speed uh, of the chaos that's swirling around us. Yeah, I mean, nothing has. Nothing has, I think, for one thing, like that's the sort of deterritorializing aspect of capital as it's like going into, you know, now that, transactions it used to be like you know cash then credit cards then by purchasing online then purchasing from your phone now it's one tap purchase yeah so like that that momentum is that keeps on going and that has even the people who design these products know uh about the tools and tricks that these persuasive technologies are employing and then they find themselves still succumbing to them and victim 
to well, them think- because they, even though they know and they design them, you know, it's like, they're still a human and, yeah. and like our physical evolution has, you know, been basically postponed and then our, our evolution has played out through society basically and through culture and through the creation of technology and a bunch of other things. Um, and like typically, you know, evolution only really occurs whenever there's like a major pressure, right? So like physical evolution is what I'm saying. Yeah. So yeah, like we're, we're either going to have to figure out a way to do certain things like evo- like education and, and also, you know, somewhat tangentially energy production and transportation. Like we just got to figure out better ways to uh, adapt, like design those systems to actually work quickly and adapt so that we can like learn fast enough to deal with the climate change. <laughs> yeah. I mean like cl- climate change being the big thing, but also this, the overwhelming speed and acceleration of technology. We need to have a form of education that allows for us to not just cope with it, but, you know, kind of understand its capacity and then, you know, do what we can to protect ourselves because like, the only path forward for like physical evolution is either like borderline extinction events or um, like technological cyborg, yeah, transhumanists approach, which, you know, there's also the middle path, which is like, maybe we just become like super Zen and also have amazing technology and like, and like, you know, don't let technology, our own technology corrupt us because we've like gotten better at just being conscious and like having consciousness as like bodies, <laughs> like, which is like what a lot of meditation and all of those practices have been trying to teach people for years. It's just like, okay, you're in a body and it's breathing. <laughs> What's happening? <laughs> like, oh, oh, you're like responding to stuff. Like, that's weird. Like your brain's doing all these things. Like, and it's really hard to control. That's so weird. You know, like maybe if we were able to, you know, not create and then like, you know, because of greed, distribute really persuasive and frankly evil technology, that would be great. I think you some know, of the... That'd be it, neat. Some of the techno- technology stuff is part and parcel of like the extremity of the division of labor because like those people that work on apps and shit like they're only working on little aspects of it or even like the you know what i mean yeah the the, like everybody's so trained for these very narrow applicate or like these very narrow roles that there is no understanding there is no questioning of like okay what are the ethical implications of this or what you know what i mean it's no like that shit doesn't matter it's your job is specifically to create this code that functions X by X, you know what I mean? Like there's a deadline, there's this, we need this, you know what I mean? Very rote. And there's not a lot of more like cross cross disciplinary, widespread type of uh, awareness of systems and everything like that's, I mean, that's what capitalism is. It's like dividing up society into a thousand battlegrounds versus cooperation. I mean, yeah. I mean, ostensibly that's what a product manager is supposed to do. Yeah. Right. I mean, right. But I mean, even they then, are, like you have to have so much specific tour, you know what I mean? Yeah. But if you're not building, um, not just ethics, like there's a movement right now in technology, the technology space and like the design space, you know, perhaps big splash represented by the new Netflix documentary, the social dilemma, which like, let's not even talk about the aesthetics of that or whatever, but it's got some good arguments and, you know, they're pushing for this, like, you know, ethical discourse. And also they want to, like, kind of argue that social media is corrosive because of just the inherent 
you know, third party intermediary profit model problem that is not solvable unless you just have like a public town square free social media thing that is truly just like, yeah, you know, no, no intermediary. Um, but setting all that aside, I mean, like, it's not just a thing about ethics. We have to also be building, you know, probably like political economy questions and other social questions into these design processes if we're ever Absolutely. actually going to get to a place where we're, we can trust that, like, you know, these individual engineers, you know, it's a team of 30 people, say, to, like, build a good product or whatever, let, but that they're not just going to use this thing to get you addicted to some habit loop, basically, right. and, and, you know, treat you like a lab rat. We, we could be using this for the opposite of that. Uh, I mean, we all use Twitter too much. We're all shitposting <laughs> all the time. You know I mean? it's, it's great to have a career that makes you use a website that is actively harming your brain. It's awesome. <laughs> it's great. See, I think it's strengthening my brain. And <laughs> it's like, yeah, it doesn't it makes you stronger. Uh, sure. Exactly. I have like the reverse. Uh, actually, Twitter has had almost entirely positive <laughs> effects for me. Other I than know, like, I, I, I'm being hyperbolic. Other than people like seeing people uh, being exposed to like new forms of reactionaries, shit libs. Aside from that. Yeah, I, I didn't really know who Neera Tandon was before, and so I wish <laughs> I hadn't known. I but... mean, she's a great example of the shit lib, but I'm even like the crazy, like the Stephen Molyneux type cats that you mm. see are like oh, fucking Lord. Shapiro and like all these other, those type of people, like holy Absolutely shit. Absolutely <laughs> terrifying. Absolutely terrifying. Like, my yeah, God, I, how do you have a, you have a blue check mark? Like, fucking kidding me? <sighs> yeah, we. I, I, I think we can... We can imagine far better alternatives for for yeah how, how we could you know use this technology to still be able to ship posts and have fun yeah I mean but 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 not necessarily like you know have an algorithm that's like you should follow Stephen Molyneux yeah like no <laughs> I don't want that uh, and and I mean like algorithms are cool they do cool stuff but like capitalism makes them shitty a lot of the times so. We got to fix that, broadly speaking. I mean, the incentive structure. I mean, you can't. You got to overthrow capital, capitalism to fix it. Honestly, otherwise, there's you can't soften capitalism. I mean, I don't think that democratic socialism is like the ticket. You know. Yeah, I. <laughs> Although I think this we got to drastically the, alter our mode of production, or one, we're going to face ecological. Yeah, uh, I. I think it. It requires collapse. Stemming I, from ecological collapse. I think it broadly requires a radical uh, expansion of the commons and a, you know, to the point of, you know, that maybe if there even is like a market for some stuff, it's incidental yeah. to most of the questions of like yeah. your resource needs and material needs in life. I, right. I think that we we just can't keep living like this it's just absolutely corrosive and cancerous i, I mean because i'm of the person i'm of the mindset that like there's always going to be people who want to like make stuff and there's always going to be like markets like of varying forms like of exchange but like when we start to talk about the difference between like what is a market versus what is capitalism as a system that facilitates um not only just like basic livelihood but also yeah, you know, like modes of production and decision making. Like, few people can just do whatever the fuck they want, and then like accumulate however 
the fuck much they want and there aren't really any boundaries on like what's collectively owned like that's fucked up yeah let's get rid of this fucking thing but i mean at the same time it's like if you want to make a slinky or something like like i don't know i i i feel like there are a lot of there's a lot of really good socialists and you know i guess even like maybe communist thinkers who still allow for what right like exchange of interpersonal goods yeah. but that's not capitalism. i mean i think the yeah it's the like actual production production like this the means of actually reproducing society yeah yeah through whatever that, food 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 energy housing medical yeah. and that's like a dialectical discourse right because that that seems to what it, what that encompasses seems to change over time because how do i want to put it it's like we as we move towards a society in which fewer and fewer people are required um fewer i guess you could say fewer labor hours are required to reproduce society and produce food and housing and this, that, and the other. Then there become other things that like, you know, it's because in like the traditional Marxist superstructure based examples of like uh, the production of a piano. Production is like the production of the materials of the piano to go into the making of the piano and like the making of the piano and maybe even the distribution of the piano and potentially, you know, that includes like the sale or whatever the piano and all those things generate value. And then um, you get to the point where then someone starts playing the piano and then that's like now no longer generating utility or surplus value or value, right? Well, I don't know, like some people make their lives now by being musicians. And like, if we live in a world where like not everybody's needed to quote unquote work, I don't know, it's just like we, we have these, at least in dialectical Marxist, you know, anti-capitalist thing, we have these questions of like, what does it mean to live life, right? What does it mean to reproduce society? Um, does that involve culture? Like, how much of culture does that involve? Does that involve culture? You know, when does the production of something that's not, that's ancillary or non-essential or tangential, maybe it metastasizes and then it becomes, you know, a bigger part of society or it changes society in ways that are un, not understood. I mean, it's just, yeah, it's, it's, it's not that these are unsolvable questions, but it's a dialectic. Marx did not anticipate <laughs> software. Yeah. He did not. He did not consider software. I don't. Th what Marx didn't anticipate was the human resource department. <laughs> ultimately, honestly, that's how uh, capitalism has mitigated, or that's how capitalism destroyed the labor movement is through yeah. you through human resources. Something that I would love for us to talk about at a later time, or I'd be wondering to know if you know much about it, is like the American tradition of psychoanalytics and its influence on American politics, because the extent to my knowledge of that is pretty limited. Uh, yeah. And it's like mostly drawing from like Adam Curtis films, which, and like references that he draws from regarding like Edward Bernays and, and the, sort of that tradition um, and its sort of involvement in the rise of uh, what you could say are like, yeah, like placating means uh, yeah. means of placation uh, I don't know if that's a word that making you use allowing but. you to be a functioning worker in society. Yeah, kind of like the the approach in the U.S. versus like psychoanalysis was so big in Europe for so long until like yeah. uh, the '70s or '80s is when it kind of sort of dies out. Yeah, because it's so different. It's it's distinctly different than you know the leftist. So it, the distinctly leftist tinged psychoanalytic analytic traditions that were yeah, in Europe here. Yeah, right. like the, because of the McCarthyist era and the, basically the purges and the blacklists and stuff. It's just like, that didn't happen here. It wasn't happening uh, 
in a contemporary academic sense in right. the same way. And yeah. then the translations weren't being done in a contemporaneous fashion. I mean, like, yeah, maybe they were coming to lose and some people were like coming over and they were giving lectures. And so it's not like they never visited and they were banned or anything like these people were coming here, but um, it's pretty notable. I think that like we haven't had as much of that creep into popular uh, consciousness and discourse. I mean, like, I don't know, even when I go to France, I see, more of the sort of just like ecological mindset and like framing of things in public like public marketing and private marketing yeah. and stuff just like even things like that uh we seem like we're so behind here in terms of some of those ideas and i'm just kind of wondering like a political economic analysis of american psychiatry like i want to dig into that and and psychoanalytics because um i mean it just it does seem like it's informed so much of civic life in other places, right? Um, and like the Adam Curtis films that I've seen, the the one that I'm thinking of in particular touches on Edward Bernays and his whole sort of like career. He was Freud's, he was Freud's nephew, I think. Yeah, and his career is, you know, the sort of founding guy in public relations. Yeah. Um, and it's sort of the overlap of psychiatry and psychoanalytics and public relations in the United States. Propaganda, yeah. <laughs> Propaganda, yes. Um, so yeah, I mean, I'd like to know more about that. I wonder if there's anybody who's who's good to talk to about well, like about that. Deleuze and Guattari, I think in particular, were very much in, or at least Guattari in the anti-psychiatry. Yes, position. yes, indeed. Which was, but I don't uh, know. I don't know enough about what all what anti-psychiatry in the specific. So I mean, I, I interpreted it as anti kind of anti-asylum thinking anti anti-policing right. yeah, uh, like psychiatry as an element an extension of the state and like sort of state ideology and policing and this that and the other and asylum psychiatry and the over clinicalization of quote-unquote mental illness so just like the notion like the you know, maybe a distinction you could say is like the, there's like shamanic appreciations for difference or deviance, intellectual or physical. And I don't mean to say deviance in a negative connotation, just like deviating from the norm. Status quo, uh, yeah. Yes. And, and that would oftentimes be viewed as like a gift or a, a sort of a difference to be valued. And, you know, like, as opposed to like capitalists, psychiatry, which is like, you're fucked up. Here's a pill. Yeah. Go back to work. There is something fundamentally wrought bad about your specific individuality, subjectivity that we have to fix. Yes. It's all in the individual instead of like the, yeah, it's not a materialist approach. No. And it is, it is, it is also very much about, I mean, as far as I've understood some of their, you know, discourse is like very much like anti- sublimation of like you know anti-repression anti like just sort of encouraging the healthy exploration of difference to the extent that it isn't destructive to the self you know drawing those boundaries right like the very vivid boundaries of like drug addicts and stuff that they would draw in, in things like anti anti-oedipus but yeah i mean it's American psychiatry is in a weird place now. It's like in psych psychoanalytics and stuff. It's like therapy is just kind of like marketed as this like vague, just therapy, you know, yeah. get it. <laughs> yeah. Right. Go like talk to someone about yeah. it. And it, and there's really, unless you're kind of coming at it from an informed perspective, there's really um, 
very little discussion or unless you start asking questions or are interested in it, it's like, what kind of therapy do you do? What is the theory behind this? Like, what are the implications of it? Are you going to get a therapist that's just like, you know, gonna kind of just discount it or they're not going to talk about, are they going to like make it all about you or your family or your problems, individualize it? Or are you going to have someone who's going to maybe be able, maybe be able to help you think pragmatically about how to deal with like a fucked up world. Right. And I think that's what psychoanalysis is more so. Yeah. How do you live? How do you like, like strategies for living, not a cure that is going to make you like a whole and necessarily. Right. So it's a different approach there. Um, one thing, last thing I wanted to mention and, and we can sort of wrap up fairly yeah. soon is, uh, did you know that Bifo wrote a book on Guattari? Hmm. I haven't read a ton. Like I haven't read all of his stuff at all now. So I don't, I didn't know that. Let's see. I forget what it's called. Uh, Cause I actually had talked to, I had exchanged emails with Bifo nice. about doing, yes, yes. About doing an episode. So yeah, he has Felix Guattari thought, friendship and visionary cartography. Interesting. It's, it's been translated. Yes. It's uh, there's a Paul Grave Macmillan publication, and I think it I think this was published in 2008. But it's pretty yeah. interesting because Bifo talks about first time he read Anti Oedipus, a friend of his. So Bifo was arrested for being a communist essentially <laughs> in Italy, and uh, well, yeah, whom who, who amongst us, right? <laughs> and uh, he gets a, fr- a friend brings him a copy of Anti Oedipus. He reads Anti Oedipus while he's in jail, and then you know a few years later he ends up. He found his way to France and hung out with Guattari in the 70s, which sounds pretty amazing. I haven't finished the book, but I had invited him on to talk about Guattari, and if so that hopefully, happens, fingers crossed. I, it's been months ago since I like got a response that, from him. But if that happens uh, and you do talk to him, just please ask him when his book, his latest fiction book, is going to finally be translated into English because I read some great excerpts on Flux and it was like forthcoming, like translation into English. I'm like, I don't read Italian. So yeah, ask him for me. It's ki- it's called Killing Swarm, I believe. It's really, Killing Swarm. really neat um, piece of fiction. Um, it's it's a collaboration with another Italian writer. I forget that writer's name. But yeah, they, there's excerpts on Iflux, um, which good publication. If you don't fucks with that. Nice. All right, I'll have to check that out. Um, something you actually might be interested in before uh, we really wrap up real quick is I have this idea. <laughs> you might you might <laughs> like this. This might be up your alley, it, or you could at least perhaps uh, assist me in, in certain elements of pursuing this project is I want to do, I want to write a Lacan comic book. <laughs> ah, <laughs> yes. I, so, I like the idea. Yes. So Lacan would, the and got a couple of different routes that I'm thinking of taking, but ultimately it would be where Lacan, I mean, at least, you know, this is early stages, but his sort of superpower, in quotes, would be like the talking cure or whatever. Like, so he engages with the antagonist and does some psychoanalytic judo, and that's how he defeats I love the antagonist. But then I was also thinking, okay, so I can draw in other historical characters and fictional characters. Like, there's so much you could do. Like, I can have Deleuze and Guattari be sort of antagonists or like, you know what I mean? Like there's a more, there's a chance for like a gray, morally gray sort of area there too, you know, which I think is kind of interesting. That's but great. I think That's it, like great. my vision is just like the cover, all right, the cover is black. I have uh, in big like sans, sans serif font in purple, lined in silver. It's just Lacan. <laughs> 
that's that's the title pretty big like you know like this big across the cover and then lacan just like cartoon mm-hmm. cartoon lacan and that's it yeah that sounds fun i think <laughs> you know big thing you always got to think about which is you know not my forte would be yeah uh, the ip the style no the style like uh the animating style right because uh you know, there's a bunch of ways you can go. I, I read this great uh, Albert Camus animated, like an adaptation of one of his novels, which is an autobiographical novel, and they turned it into a graphic novel, and it's just fantastically done, just very well done. And you know, it's I would say in like a style that like I would say it's maybe fitting for the the subject matter, but yeah, it depends on what what sort of adventures Lacan is going to go on, you know, maybe you'd want it to be a bit more racy or more uh, contemporary sort of color style, or do you want it to be noir? I mean, there's so many fun ideas. I kind of like, have you ever read any of the Grant Morrison um, Doom Patrol? Oh, I'm familiar with it. Yeah. uh, I like the art style that he uses. It's kind of, it's a little bit more of like an old school style but I really like it. It's very like bold and high contrast, which I don't know, just in general, that's kind of like my I I like bold, bold high contrast, eye popping kind of things. Yeah. But, uh, I, 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 if, if my series of skits uh, for <laughs> the protean, the protean radio players goes well, then we'll, we'll see. But I'm, I'm hopeful. We've got a little bit about how, yeah, this Dr. Proteus gets stuck on this Island and carves, uh, himself a friend out of a uh, uh, Galangal, which is like a ginger rhizome. Oh, uh, <laughs> nice. Oh, that's cool. Like and so that. he's like talking to a rhizome and he's trying to explain his like findings on the island. And he uh, he's explaining and he gets interrupted by the pirates, but he's explaining, so, okay, there's a set of mushrooms that I've discovered that have no <laughs> side effects and are totally edible. And then there's also these other mushrooms that I found that are totally edible, but have a great number of side effects. <laughs> <laughs> and he's just like been eating psychedelic mushrooms because he's bored on an island. And yeah, they, they uh, will, will go on a, a series of adventures where like they'll, they'll employ their particular expertises uh, as it relates to like a historical references and they're going to just pull in a bunch nice. of, we're, we're going to have like guests. Yeah. Like guest characters that are obviously nods to like either philosophers we like, or right. like the villains will be like a, yeah. Like a Bolsonaro ripoff, like some Latin, <laughs> Latin American fascist. Who's like always sick. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, you know, I think it's just fun. And it introduces people to, you know, things in a way that they otherwise may yeah, not. Exactly. Ever, yeah, was, ever interact with them. I was thinking that maybe, I know that, uh, so Lacan's son-in-law, Jacqueline Miller, mm-hmm. who was like Zizek's teacher for psychoanalysis, is pretty like, he's like the head of the estate, I think. And, you know, he approves like all the translations and, and shit like that. So I might have to go with like, instead of Jacques Lacan, it would be like Jack Lack or something like So I might have to do something stupid like that, but it would like uh, still to make it work with IP or so they don't sue me. But Yeah. That's, that's, I hadn't, you know, really <laughs> thought too deeply about that. But yeah. Yeah. That's very good point. Anybody who's got an estate, right. like a publishing. Yeah. And if I'm going to name the book Lacan, you know, I'm sure there would be, I'm sure they have some, control over like how his name can be used or what have you mm. uh, another thing on that while we're on the topic of comic books uh before i let you go is reza negrastrani is mm-hmm. there's a chrono have you heard of chronosis yes okay so it's not out yet but i'm eagerly anticipating that coming out because that sounds mm. really yeah I... looking at the if you look at the cover on like amazon or whatever it's <laughs> it looks pretty pretty wild well this has been fun man i'm yeah, glad man. to get to I'm hoping to have get on. I got a bug Reza too. He did agree to 
come on the show. I just got to like keep pestering him. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I'll let you know, it'd be, it'd be fun if we could do like a collaborative. Oh, I'm going to see if Kyle has any ideas for what we could chop it up about because yeah, he's, he's a big, big to his head. We're, we're trying to work in some jokes about like Mr. Potato Head. Uh, nice. Into the into the skits, we you know we both are big Mr. Potato Head worshippers. Hey, before you do sign out, you know, give us your Twitter handle. All the give us all the oh, yeah. all the plugs, my friend. I always forget to do that. Uh, yeah, so uh, I'm at at Steve Anzetti, which is like S T E and then Vanzetti, all one word. <laughs> you know, gotta gotta connect to my Italian socialist roots and anarchist roots and hopefully not getting arrested <laughs> on hanged, false yes. charges right, yes. and hanged. Yeah. So shouts out. Um, that's me at Steve Anzetti and check out Protea Mag. You know, um, I know you're listening to a podcast, but in case you want to listen to another podcast, we also have a, a podcast, Protean, Protean Pod. So go check that out. And I will also just be writing. So if you're in Dallas and you want to read about protests or the police or sometimes um, food, I write about those things. So yeah. throw me some, throw me some bylines and I'll put them in the show notes too. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Um, one I didn't even talk about that. Uh, I think you, you would particularly enjoy is I did a network analysis of this organization that is called the friends of Dallas police. Um, <laughs> Oh, and they God. just like ra- they raise money and like throw a big banquet and like give awards to pat the cops on the back oh, and a God. bunch of people who are on the board and stuff and advisors are like really rich connected people and the of president course. of the organization has like an sec lawsuit pending and was <laughs> like previously uh previously charged with like a 20 million dollar lawsuit for like fraud relating to home construction near austin texas so it's just like <laughs> it couldn't get any more yeah. rich when it comes right. to uh the juxtaposition so yeah yeah I'll, I'll give you that one that one's fun because because i really went all uh pepe da silva on that motherfucker for nice. a second there and and was like you know oh shit you know what names on my wall you know what we've <laughs> you got the, like the russ cole yeah just the red side. lines i'm just like <laughs> I pitched it to the editor, and he's like, you want to do what now? Just wait, just wait. It could be your ultimate form of security, which is